everyone and welcome to the 58th 58th edition of DF2Ec Weekly. It's our weekly show about the latest gaming and technology news and uh, for the fir- third week in a row there is not really any gaming and technology news. <laughs> so joining me to basically fill out uh, an hour and change is first of all Alex Battaglia. Today I'm going to be rather verbose rich. I'm going to use a lot of big words, really airy sentences to pad out that runtime. Let's just do some jamming. <laughs> And of course, John Linneman. Oh, I think you're selling this episode short, Rich. There's some good stuff on the docket today. I actually think people will enjoy this. Uh, I mean, we're going to be talking about whether stuff is like next gen now. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about Breath of the Wild. We got the Playdate. We've got Steam Deck stuff. We've got Unreal Engine. Like, I'm just kind of, you know, it's a preview of what's to come and there's more and it's good. So let's get into it. Absolutely. And I understand, John, that Breath of the Wild 2 is too big for Switch. We've got to talk about it. But first of all, first major topic, it's kind of like uh, an extension of previous discussion that we've had, previous content that we've uh, we've produced for the channel. Um, obviously, the recent reveal of Unreal Engine 5 has essentially brought us closer to a new paradigm uh, in gaming and gaming technology. Question is, what's been happening up to date? You know, have we actually moved into the new generation, even though we have <laughs> the new generation of consoles? We seem to be mired in this sort of uh, cross-generation era where games are being designed to straddle both, uh, you know, PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PS5, Xbox Series generations. It's only really with Unreal Engine 5 arguably, that we're seeing something genuinely new and exciting. Um, I'm going to go to you, uh, first of all, on this one, John, because I think we have to sort of set the parameters here because there have been next-gen-only games and there have been games that couldn't have been done on the prior generation. What do you make of all of this? So my thought on this is that, first of all... um, I do think there has been a shift in the philosophy behind this for both companies. And I do think that it is entirely possible that this is related to the chip shortage, but I only think that goes for uh, a certain amount. Like it's not the full, the full story. I also believe that with the way modern game development tools have progressed, the techniques in play, most game concepts should realistically be able to work across those generations because the hardware itself is similar enough. It's really like if you're making a game that's scalable across a wide range of PCs, right? Um, Then it's a similar type of task, almost akin to, you know, getting a game running on the Steam Deck versus a a high-end PC, I would argue. Uh, But obviously we have seen some games that have been designed to specifically utilize features of the new hardware. I think Ratchet and Clank is still probably one of the best examples of this. Um, And that's really, I think, what's mainly different here is that in the past, we typically did see more first-party studios pushing the next-gen envelope a little bit more, though not entirely. Uh, And so it's mainly Sony that shifted this time. And I do think it's because they're not able to get enough units in there. But... uh, at the same time, because uh, when was their last next-gen only release? Do you remember? Because there was Ratchet, of course. Returnal? Returnal. Returnal was before that. Right. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. So it's been a tricky, while now. Tricky, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, G- GT7, Horizon, they've been cross-generation in nature. And I think I think it's fairly, fairly sort of, you know, there's, 
those were always cross-gen games, right? I mean, you know, it's not as if they suddenly resurrected the PS4 build of Horizon. It's been there since day one. Maybe that's the difficult point that I that I need to spell out more clearly is like the decisions made on these games, whether they're cross-gen or next-gen only, are decisions that have had to have been made a long time ago. So I guess while it on the surface it may seem like this chip shortage has had an impact, and I do think it has some impact, it's also clear that a lot of these games were developed this way from the beginning for both consoles. And it's, you know, likely due to their length of development time, uh, what they're actually doing in the game and how they deemed it possible on one or the other, that sort of thing. And Microsoft's no stranger to this. They did it last gen as well with, you know, Rise of the Tomb Raider was like this and it was really good on Xbox 360. Uh, you know, Forza Horizon 2 was on there. Um... There were several others as well, but th- it was a common thing. And for third parties, yeah, but, but, but at, the, at the same time, we had Rise, Dead Rising Three, that, Forza Motorsport. See that—that's the difference. Is last gen when the consoles launched, there was a, an immediate like release period of new next gen exclusives, right? And that's that's what really didn't happen this time, right? And I think that's why this opinion has been colored this way because you look at last gen, you had those games. And then the next year, year and a half, or even two years of Xbox One and PS4, they had a lot of cross-gen games, especially from third parties. Uh, Obviously, in many of those cases, those cross-gen games didn't work well. Uh, I think Shadow of Mordor is our favorite whipping boy for this, which is just atrocious (laughs) on PS3 especially. Um, But I think the problem we're facing now is just... uh, games have become so ridiculously expensive at this point that it's really difficult to imagine spending all that money to put out a game for one platform or two even a next-gen platform when the number of units available is so small right like right now we're under 20 million for ps5 it's like 17 18 million right now right let's see if a big budget game it releases right now you're not funded by sony like what about um the square game um uh, what is it? It's the Final Fantasy Stranger Tangential Paradise? one. Oh, that one. What's one? Are you talking about Stranger of Paradise? Strange, Stranger of No, Paradise. no, 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 no. It's the, uh, I'm forgetting the name. It's it's oh. the one with the uh, Luminous Studio engine. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, oh gosh. Uh, it's the name, yeah, see, Forspoken, what? the word that Forsp- Rick loves. Yeah. That, see, that's, that's why <laughs> yeah, I couldn't remember it, word. because the word is just so ridiculous. And that's <laughs> not good for their marketing, by the way, that I couldn't pull it up so easily. But... Uh, <laughs> you, you have something like Forspoken, right? Um, I'd imagine that's not a cheap game to make. Right now, as far as we know, I think it's just PS5, maybe PC? PS5, but, PC, yeah. So PS5, PC. Imagining what that costs to make. They put that out right now, let's say. The, their potential customer base is pretty limited, I would say. The PC helps, no doubt, but it is more limited than it would otherwise be. And this probably puts a cap on their sales. And we also know that Square Enix has ridiculous expectation for sales anyway. So we'll just, we'll get one of those reports in like nine months where they say this game failed to meet expectations. Uh, That's going to happen anyway. So I can see why they would, you know, be worried about this and other developers would be worried about this because of the lack of sales potential right now. But I do think it will change at some point in the next year. So we've got a question here from uh, Flo G, DF supporter. Uh, I'm going to level this one at you, Alex. When do you expect the next full-fledged current-gen experiences a la Returnal or Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart that are only possible on these newer machines? 
this is the bit I'm more interested in. What kind of games, game design or gameplay mechanics would you like to see? So, you know, we have seen what you might call some um, uh, experimental dipping of the toes in the water. I mean, Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition, fully ray-traced, couldn't be done on a prior generation console, but Metro Exodus is available on a prior generation console. So, I mean, obviously now we have flavor with the uh, Unreal Engine 5 giving us a hint of, you know, the direction of travel, so to speak. But what kind of games, game design or gameplay mechanics would you like to see? The first part of this question, what is the next one we were going to see? Originally, it was going to be Stalker 2, uh, but uh, for obvious reasons, that's been uh, delayed. And that would have been an Unreal Engine 5 title, according to their press releases. And just the visuals that we saw in that game look pretty impressive. Then it was going to be Forspoken. Uh, but that also got the delay stick. And uh, we're not going to be seeing that, I think, until, what, October or November of the next year? Maybe it was September, I forget. But either way, that's gotten also another long delay. And we would have, with that, we would have seen essentially a larger open world game with really low loading times, which you could only do on the current gen, really. Crazy asset variety and really good looking character models. Uh, but that's not the thing that I'm actually interested in in uh, next-gen games. I'm not really interested in games so much so from a technical point of view that use like the same tried and true techniques from last gen, uh, but just have like the, the dials pulled up a bit, like, oh, our, our models are better, or oh, our lighting has slightly higher precision, our, our shadows are better, etc. Uh, we run a bit better. I'm not too interested in that. I'm interested in the paradigm shifts, uh, which is why I've been so interested in ray tracing, and it's why UE5 in its current iteration is so darn interesting. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen already how hard that is to get out there. And one of the reasons why I think uh, that, uh, that one thing that was John talking about was they have to plan these projects so far ahead of time. You also have to have the tools and the technology to build out the project. And these things are, these tools and the technology that exist there are still unproven ground. There are not best practices about how to get these things done. Uh, there is no best practice about how to do uh, ray tracing on consoles yet necessarily, let alone ray trace GI on consoles. Lumen is just one example. You also have what the guys did with Metro there. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to do things. And to spend the R&D time to do that, well, that's going to take a while. So I don't think we're going to see uh, these games coming out for a while now, to just answer the original question here. Uh, but the things that I'm really interested in, in games, I'm interested in ones that use real-time lighting and shadowing uh, that is done via ray tracing. Uh, ray trace lighting is, to me, just... I look at old games and I see all the discontinuities there, and I hope people in the audience start to see that too, and they're like, God, this would look so much better with ray tracing. That's what I think all the time. But the other thing I'm really interested in, and that we really haven't even seen, even in like uh, Rift Apart, we haven't really seen it in Returnal. There's some nice destruction in Returnal, but, you know, it's not really game impacting necessarily. Um, and definitely not in any of the other titles here really, is I really wanna see a game that utilizes the CPU and the GPUs in these consoles and on equivalently spec PCs to actually have a much more physicalized world that is much more systemic than the usual, you walk through an area with baked lighting where nothing can really be touched thing that we saw partially at the end of the Xbox 360 PS3 generation, but all throughout the PS4, Xbox One generation, I want to see that go away. And I want to see more games focusing on the systemic physics-based interactions in games. And um, I actually don't know of any upcoming titles that have promised that, 
necessarily. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of focuses on cinematic trailers and storytelling have pushed that to the wayside. But that's the actual thing I'm really interested in next-gen games. I think the problem there is that it's not just a limitation of hardware. It's it's actually a huge design challenge. And coming up, coming up with a concept that works well and utilizes this is not an easy task, I think. Although I do think that there's plenty of room for more just, you know, cool physics. It, it doesn't have to necessarily, like, impacting gameplay would be great, but it doesn't have to do it. Just having cool physics, you know, stuff that breaks apart more realistically would add a lot to the experience, I think. Well, you know, this whole cross-generation thing, I think it's a, a factor of many different um, aspects of hardware design and just the sheer success of the last generation which uh, was was never a given i think you know i think if you look back to base playstation 4 and xbox one those machines were actually built quite conservatively because everybody was predicting the end of the console in that period but you know essentially um moving from playstation 3 to playstation 4 xbox 360 to xbox one um the commonality and design between the consoles was very limited so that's possibly why we received that really bad conversion of Shadow of Mordor. Um, because, you know, there wasn't scalability. You were basically producing two entirely separate versions of the same game. That isn't a consideration with this generation and the last, because, you know, they're both built on x86 architecture and Radeon graphics. And so, you know, the, the production processes allow for last generation um, uh, uh, ports that aren't too bad actually further muddying the waters is you know hardware like xbox one x which is to this day is you know the graphics are there it's pretty good you know um it's kind of seemingly migrated into a pretty good 1080p machine uh the the issue being of course that you're at 30 fps because of those dire x86 cores but you know the point is that it's it's commercially viable to make those versions of those games. It's not onerously difficult to make them. There's a huge installed base out there, many of whom can't yet buy a new console. So all of these factors um, have combined to create this, um, this sort of extended cross-generation era. And I think it's, the thing that depresses me is that um, it looks like it's gonna be moving on into 2023 as well. So, you know, I've just started work on a video about potentially what a mid-generation refresh or a next-generation console could look like. But I'm kind of thinking to myself, there's a there's a very strong argument that this console generation has not yet begun. Uh, in full, you know, in full blood, so to speak, full-throated, it just hasn't really begun. If you go back to the, you know, the origin, as I said, the, um, the beginnings of the last console generation, you know, we had Killzone Shadowfall. Uh, no way would that have been even attempted on a PlayStation 3. Um, you know, even stuff like Dead Rising 3, which, I, you know, I don't think it's a particularly great game, but it was doing things that couldn't have been done on Xbox 360 or would have been extremely challenging. Rise, I mean, the, you know, what they were doing with the graphics on Rise. Still looks so awesome. good. <laughs> it's still awesome looking. Yeah. You know, those techniques are still kind of in play. You know, that's kind of like the point, right? You know, 
there hasn't been a massive fundamental shift. Hashtag Shavat was right. <laughs> Eight gigs of RAM. Remember when people laughed at him about that? That was great. It's always going to be uh, Crisis 2 on Xbox 360 and PS3 will always run at th 30 frames per second. That's the, the classic Shavat quote for me. Another thing that, Rich, that you're getting at there is the, the attachment rate of next-gen-only games shifted uh, in this generation as well so far. What we've seen on Xbox Series X, Xbox Series S, and PlayStation 5 is that we haven't seen as many i would say exclusive double a style games like your dying lights lords of the fallen uh we saw last gen i think we really like we have that uh one game from team bloober uh you know the the medium the medium but other than that um, crossfire x from remedy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Crossfire X, the campaign, not, not the multiplayer side, not the multiplayer. <laughs> but even then, I think the the campaign could probably run on Xbox Three, uh, Xbox Three City, Xbox One X. It does, it does run on Xbox One X. Oh, it does. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, like okay, you got yeah. that. Um, there, there's a lot less of that, and I think that used to be a way to guarantee um, for a game that had like middling sales potential due to just market penetration and all these other metrics that attaching it to a next-gen or current-gen machine at that point gave you free sales from people who really did not have a large library to choose from. One thing we have now is really good backwards compatibility on both systems for the previous generation of consoles. So you don't actually have this need to buy a game that is just coming out for next-gen because you want to fill your time slot. Actually, you have a, the whole backlog of games and all these other games that are also just coming out for last gen anyway so that's one thing that i'm a little bit sad that we don't have as much this time around because because we got some interesting tech in that way you know whether it be you know techland stuff or um what um deck uh was it deck 13 right deck 13 did with lords of the fallen uh which i think had really awesome graphics for uh for that game at that time period I think an indie game which we should look at, but it's PC only, and it is incredible, is Teardown. I mean, we have covered it on the channel. Um, I'm not even sure. I guess the consoles could do it, but it's extremely challenging. Yeah, it's really right? heavy. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is a game quite unlike any other. It's, I mean, if you've got, if you have the means, I highly recommend it. I just feel like we're in a state, though, where just game development price, the cost of making these games is starting to reach this point where... I'm actually a little bit worried about the future of the industry, right? Like, I feel like all of this feeds into, like, the constant acquisitions we're seeing, uh, you know, issues with studios, like, sort of maintaining, uh, you know, their independence. It's difficult right now because it takes so long and costs so much money to create these things. And if it doesn't hit big, uh, you're in deep trouble. And I understand why companies don't want to take this risk anymore or reduce that risk as much as they can, because it's really, uh, you know, the wrong decision could end your studio. And that's, that's terrible. And I, I don't know what the solution is out of this. I, I think indie game development, smaller studios have started, they've continued to grow over time and we're seeing bigger projects from them. But I feel like the AAA space has just reached this dangerous point where I don't know how long it can last you know, outside of like the top, top, top tier where they're willing to give these studios just tons of tons of money to make whatever they can. But then I fear that this also sort of like upsets expectations. Like when you're seeing what these top studios can do, there is a subset of people that look at that and be like, yeah, look how powerful this box is. It's so good. And then they get mad when other games don't look that good. And we've reached the point where the power of the box is 
ultimately less important than it's ever been. It's more about just what the studios can afford to make and the people doing that work, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, when we start looking ahead to, uh, you know, potential pro consoles, next generation consoles, Microsoft and Sony really pushed the boat out with these ones, right? And, and yeah, the, the cost implications on producing a generational leap beyond that is going to be extremely, extremely significant. And at the same time, you know, um, they're going to be looking at Switch, Series S. They've sold well. You know, power isn't the defining factor, right? That's the thing. I don't think it's possible, but I would love to see this. If Microsoft could do their own Steam Deck equivalent, that's essentially like the Series S, but portable. Uh, I think that would be, because with their, their service-focused model, I feel like they could introduce a piece of hardware like that. And it's not like, this is the platform. It's like, no, this is just more Xbox. And it plays your Xbox games, but it's portable if you want it. You know what I mean? I really see potential there in a way that... I don't think Sony's going to try another portable system. Uh, I just don't think they can do it. But Microsoft could actually do it, I think, uh, if, you know, when the hardware's there. But we do have a demarcation point for, uh, you know, the, the transition to next gen. And it is Unreal Engine 5, Lumen and Nanites. You you can't, I mean, well, conceivably Xbox One X. <laughs> it could run software SSD, mode, right? Could possibly well, do Well, I don't know. But the, the CPU requirements on UE5 are so high right yeah, now, right? Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's not, it's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> scrub that. I'm talking nonsense. Um, <laughs> but we've got a big bunch of UE5 questions here from supporters. And uh, I'm, I'm going to lump the first two together. Um, first one from Abby. Given uh, state of performance of advanced UE5 features, will we see many games UE5 use UE5 but not use the new paradigms? Well, we've already got one. It's called Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it's yes is the answer there. Um, second one from Concrete Llama. It's been said a few times now, including the last DF Direct, that the target for UE5, at least on console, is 30 FPS. Given what we've seen, this makes sense to me. However, not all developers will essentially want to use the full feature set of UE5 and may still want to target 60. What are the options for them? Are there any UE5-specific features that can be leveraged while still maintaining 60 FPS? So, Alex, you've just done like a breakdown of CPU, GPU utilization, Lumen, Nanite, the whole shooting match. Uh, what about this concept of cherry-picking UE5 features to retain 60 FPS or simply to, you know, to, to have a, a great level of performance. It's totally doable. Um, but the thing is, I'm not sure the amount of support that Epic will be giving to other features over time when Lumen and Nanite are going to be the thing that are driving them forward into the future, the next 10, 20 years of whatever Epic's going to be doing. Um, but right now, uh, they're being slowly deprecated out, but they're still available to be used is you have the ability to, of course, still bake your scene lighting uh, but at that point in time, you're talking about a very different game. So if you want to have a game that is more static, uh, more traditional in that aspect, uh, you can still do that. And that will cut off all the time on the GPU and the CPU that Lumen is taking up in either of its modes, uh, software or hardware mode. So that is an option. Uh, and I see a lot of games that are probably going to use UE5 are going to choose to still do bake lighting because they just don't require the fidelity or the dynamism of something that Lumen offers. Nanite is a little different uh, where I feel like you can target 60 FPS in, uh, in a game using Nanite more easily. 
uh, but it still has a number of performance considerations like the overlapping of geometry, um, how many instances you're throwing out there. Uh, that one, I think we're going to see a more larger uptake of that uh, than we're going to see for Lumen for games targeting 60 FPS. But even then, the other lighting paradigms there, if you want to target 60, like say you want to have dynamic lighting in a, in a UE5 game, uh, and still use Nanite, it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine what you're going to use if you don't want to use Lumen. They still offer technically deprecated versions of like ScreenSpace GI, and I think you can still, if you want to use it, uh, there is still um, their version of Science Distance Field Ambient Occlusion, but it's using their new SDF generation, so it's cheaper and more comprehensive than it was before. So maybe we'll see a, a, a higher uptake of those things for games that don't want to go full new Lumen and kind of have to target 30 FPS. Uh, but, you know, like I said at the, uh, at the beginning of my little rant here is that there's not a good reason other than from targeting VR and Switch and last gen and phones. Yeah, well, phones, they're going to be using, you know, like the forward renderer and all these other things that, you know, barely used on PC uh, or on consoles anyway. So like, that's like a different path, but you know, like there's still like that medium to low power stuff there in the end that they're going to start slowly deprecating over time. And I don't know how much support they're going to get. So like, what's the difference then if you're using UE4 versus UE5 at that point? And it's mainly the other features like the large continuous world and the mass AI and 64-bit co coordinate system and things like that. And those things are also pretty expensive, as we found out in that video I did. So it's, uh, I don't know. I think targeting 60 FPS on UE5 right now in this cross-gen period would actually mean uh, not using things like Lumen. Uh, but I don't know what it means in exactly four to five years when Lumen already maybe looks a little different and the CPU situation is maybe different. So I can't really talk about then, but now I'd say it's like actually not using the UE5 tech's uh, main selling points at the moment. Right, yeah. I think to sort of round off this discussion, I mean, there are more questions and it's all about performance really. And um, yeah, I think sort of to round off this discussion, it's still early days. And if we go back to the early days of UE4, barely anyone could get a good quality shipping game out. I mean, it was the coalition really with Gears 4. That was the one. And that was the one really, wasn't it? There were a <laughs> few sort yeah, of- Yeah, um, it was literally the only one that was really good. <laughs> In terms of like mega AAA yeah. blockbusters mm -hmm. using UE4. And now we've got UE4 basically dominating um, the, the, the whole development environment in certainly the release schedule. And it seems like it's going to be the same with UE5. And, uh, you know, I've said it before, the brain trust that, that Epic has built up, you know, this engine will come good and it is early days. But I, I'm just kind of concerned about those initial releases and um, how those features are going to scale. And I suspect 30 FPS will be where we're at in the here and now, which kind of surprises me because, um, you know, if, if we look at the design of the current generation consoles, it looks to me like the, the CPU was the one component that was like a done deal that was like, you know, yeah, we've got spades of overhead here. UE5 has kind of rewritten the rule book there. And it's actually the GPUs that uh, seem to be holding up pretty well, simply due to the, the inherent nature of scalability in graphics that you don't quite have on CPU. That's the one thing that makes the case for a cross-gen machine. 
uh, beef up the CPU more, uh, introduce some sort of like DLSS like solution if possible. You know, basically things to increase resolution without rendering more pixels and also sort of overcome the uh, hardware demands of Unreal Engine 5 to get back up to 60 FPS. You know, I don't know how you sell it to consumers, but I feel like that's where we would need to go, right? Uh, it was just browsing uh, <laughs> the internet the other day, came across this headline, a Breath of the Wild is too big. Breath of the Wild 2 is too big for Nintendo Switch. Too big. And um, experts have said this. And, uh, you know, I've had to find out who the experts were. It turns out that it's us. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's us. <laughs> it's us. Um, I think this is just an unfortunate headline. Um, but, you know, I did a Google search of Breath of the Wild too too big for Switch. And I'm getting a lot of hits here, guys. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, reports suggest Breath of the Wild sequence, uh, Breath of the Wild sequel might be too big. Um, you know, Zelda Breath of the Wild may be too big for Switch. Uh, but what's what's this headline here? Uh, Breath of the Wild, Zelda Breath of the Wild 2, too big for Switch? Question mark. Digital Foundry thinks so. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, please, we no. Don't, we don't think so. so. So this is what happens. I mean, you know, we're struggling to fill our, uh, our weekly show with news because there isn't any news. So, you know, basically what's happened here is that an unfortunate headline and it is a headline because I actually read the article that seemingly spawned all of these ones, and it's actually quite reasonable. It, um, but, you know, we were just talking about the Breath of the Wild 2 footage that was recently released, looking too good potentially for uh, the current generation Switch, which some people seem to believe means that it's not, we think it's not going to come to the Switch. That's that's not going to happen, right? In, in The best case scenario is this is, this is going to be a cross-generation game similar to the first Breath of the Wild. It will straddle two versions of Nintendo hardware. We never said that it's too big for the Switch. I actually had to go back, because here's the thing, right? I mean, when you're doing this kind of unscripted, off-the-cuff show, sometimes you do say things that, you know, in retrospect, sound a bit stupid. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I do that a lot, yep. <laughs> big time. <laughs> and uh, and you get these, I love these uh, super cuts that appear on uh, on Twitter, yes. where you get strategic edits that, that just make us look like complete imbeciles. Or more to the point, idiots mm -hmm. aspiring to be imbeciles. <laughs> and uh, this is definitely one of them. But I, I went through the uh, the content, and in no way did we ever say that it was too big for Switch. Right, John? Yeah, I think the misunderstanding comes... We were basically discussing how the trailer appeared to be rendering at a higher resolution, and that's it. And we were like, oh, higher resolution effects. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That, that we would but that's the, that, that <laughs> stuff is completely scalable, right? Like that doesn't, we weren't implying that it couldn't run on the previous Switch, just that it could be benefiting from more powerful hardware in that trailer, conceivably, due to this higher rendering resolution and better effects. Uh, but, you know, that's just that, right? That's the equivalent of like Series S versus Series X. <laughs> if, if you look at hardware it's, that's it, out, right? It's even even videos. I've got, I'm doing a YouTube search here. Could Breath of the Wild 2 go next gen? Digital Foundry thinks it's too big for Nintendo Switch. Ew, no, we don't think it's too big. Too big. This, yeah, the, that weird too wording. Big. Too big. It is, isn't it? You know, the scale of a game is, you know, we were talking about uh, <laughs> rendering resolution and visual effects. And this is somehow equated to uh, volume size. I, I think I know the next headline. It's too big, and they need to ship it on multiple cartridges. <laughs> yeah, it's going to say it's like actual physical size. 
<laughs> or maybe the cartridge is too big because Switch 2 uses a different size cartridge. You know, all Yeah, it was delayed because they mistakenly shipped out a version and the cartridge itself was too physically big to fit in the Switch and they had to, you know, they delayed it. I need some more off quotes. That's what we really need. <laughs> I mean, there are, I mean, if we want to sort of quote Digital Foundry, Alex is a mine of fantastic quotes. <laughs> yes. The, the, the hand foot scenario. <laughs> yes. It, you know, it all, it all just go back. I mean, if you're, if you're desperate for news, watch your <laughs> watch some more DF Direct weekly. There's tons of potential material that will get some great headlines. But yes, uh, just let's just sort of tie this one up with a bow. It's coming out on Switch. They've announced it's coming out on Switch. We're not saying it's too, too big or, or even that it can't be run on Switch. It's coming out on Switch, but that footage looks, um, really really clean i actually revisited the footage as well this morning i'll stand by what we said there it, it doesn't look like a switch game but you know it could be a pre-render i don't think nintendo would actually <laughs> mistakenly put out switch pro footage uh you know just because i do think that you know there is this um potential for a crossover between two switch models but that's kind of it it was just speculation so you know let's 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 just leave it at that so, John, I heard that beep there. That's right. Playdate is here. I'm playing with it. just want to talk about this one quickly because it's not, I don't know, it's kind of curious, isn't it? Because it's, it is a, a nice little product. Not specifically a digital foundry showcase as such, but, you know, it's worth talking More about. More of a right? DF retro showcase, in a way, despite yeah, it being in, a new in a way. So, obviously, new with new games. Exactly. Everybody's <laughs> talking about the crank. That's the thing you hear in all the reviews. But for me, for my money, what ended up being most interesting was this return to this type of screen. Uh, so this is actually, they're using a, what's called a sharp memory LCD screen, right? So uh, it can actually remain lit. So when you put this thing to sleep like this, it just shows a clock. And you can see that's when we're filming right now. Oh, there's new system update too. But it's, it's a really cool screen to see because it uses reflective technology, kind of like... Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, but I will say that it's evolved significantly to the point where it's much, much easier to see. Uh, the way light reflects off of it is really nice. <clears throat> and it gives it this, it has this really sharp look to it that I'm finding, like, shockingly awesome looking in motion. Uh, it looks unlike any other LCD screen you might be buying on a device today. Uh, and it's actually one bit, right? So it's oh, literally so black, <laughs> black and white. Uh, that's not enough bits John no yeah. it's not but they with with the high resolution though they're able to do these really nice dithering patterns I was gonna ask to yeah. create some gorgeous looking art that just I'm really stunned by how good a lot of these games end up looking like it's just really beautiful art direction all around and uh, I I like so you know Obviously, I'm way into physical games, right? But I, this this platform is built around a digital sort of distribution model, but it's all very simple stuff. The idea was that when you buy it, you get access to like a season of games and they kind of dole them out. I think it's every two weeks, you get two more. Uh, for the review process, they just kind of were giving all of them out. <laughs> but uh, they're all like really interesting and different. Like, there's one that has you going around. It's almost like a Pokemon-style RPG where you're, like, taking pictures of birds uh, and following the story along there. Very strange. There's this one from Keita Takahashi, 
I believe, who uh, worked on the Katamari Damashi games. And it's literally, um, you're go- you're trying to go to a date, and you're late every time. And each level involves using the crank to move forward and backwards through time. So, like, let's say you're, there's, like, a, a, a bee flying across the screen, and it hits you, and you die, you go back. So, but if you're just using the crank, the character might stop, look at a flower, and he'll, like, lean down to sniff the flower. If you pause time there, the thing will fly over you, right? So you're, like, basically, like, manipulating time with the crank, and it's it's super cool. Uh, so it's uh, stuff like that that's really neat, but it's just this... It's, it's really the build quality that just kind of blows me away. Like, this... It's really important in a device, especially a handheld device, that it feels good in the hand, right? And the materials have to be pleasing, like the the screen, the user interface, the buttons. And there's just something about this that I find really, like, attractive. Like, it has all these little, like, bolts here. They're actually see-through, except for this one. Uh, They're all made of actual metal. The crank itself is metal and feels, like, very, very sturdy. This thing is really, like, just dense feeling and, like, surprisingly thick and well-designed. The screen is beautiful. The buttons are nice and responsive. And the games are all just, like, really weird but interesting indie ideas that are all very simple, very pick-up-and-play, but um, they're fun and creative. And it's just, like, it's small enough where you really could just put it in your pocket, put it in your bag, and you take it out, you're outside... Actually, the fact that it's a reflective LCD makes it easier to see outside. If you take like a normal handheld system or even your phone out into a bright sunny day, it's actually harder to see, right? Where this becomes like way easier to see in direct sun. So it ends up looking really cool that way. So when you look at that, you look at all the games on here and you combine it together and it just ends up being something that's just really fun and pleasant to use. And I'm just super impressed with the engineering efforts that went into it. And also the battery life is long. It's difficult to do a video on that, right? Which is why we haven't done one. Yeah, that's... So, obviously, you know, I've filmed non-backlit screens before, like when I reviewed the Analog Pocket. Uh, It's not that easy to do, especially if you're actively playing the device. And being that it's a reflective LCD, if you shine bright camera lights on it, you end up getting light reflection off of like the plastic covering, and it's it's kind of a pain to film that way. Uh, I'd have to fiddle with that a little bit. But if if people watching this would actually like to see more and actually some video coverage, do let me know. I mean, that we can definitely make that happen. And I do think I could compare this with other LCDs. Because one of the benefits of this type of LCD is that it doesn't really exhibit the typical LCD ghosting right? Like if you go back and play like a GBA as well, uh, the original non-backlit model, you'll find that, oh, the scrolling is completely free of like LCD blur, persistence blur. It's when you add in those backlights that it starts to introduce that problem. And I think it's something to do with the nature of the way our eyes work (laughs) that causes it. So it just has this clarity to it that's really interesting to look at. You know, the resolution of that really interesting reflective screen so it's 400 by 240 so i think that's actually the 3ds resolution you know and it's 173 pixels per inch it almost seems like it's rife for like dos ega dos ports almost dude yeah (laughs) actually so that's the thing the type of visuals this thing produces reminds me so much of early pc yeah like it has that look of old like dos either grayscale or EGA graphics, just with the way they do the dithering and the type of art that I'm seeing. It's so reminiscent of that in a way that's cool. 
the rest of the specs, by the way, it has 16 megabytes of memory, uh, four gigabytes of internal storage. It does have Wi-Fi, of course, and charges the USB-C. Uh, the CPU itself has an ARM processor at 180 megahertz. So, and there's another 80 megahertz chip in there as well. So it's really like low power, but it's more than powerful enough for the types of games they're delivering. And I just really, I like seeing such a well thought out, well designed, well executed product like this. Like it just feels from back to front, it's super well made. And it's an example of what, there's been many companies that have tried to launch new hardware with new ideas, you know, where they're targeting like a, a new audience that may or may not exist. It's really hard to pull it off. A lot of them have either failed completely and been canceled, are in the process of failing, or you just never hear from again. It's, it happens time and time again. So the fact that they were able to get this thing done this well and get it out all during this parts shortage time period, uh, I got I to gotta hand it to them. It's really impressive. Do let us know if you, if you want to see more coverage on that. Uh, I suspect there's still much more to talk about in terms of the actual games and stuff. And uh, of course, we, we're still eagerly awaiting the fishing simulation <laughs> for the current. But <laughs> let's leave it at that for now. So we're staying with the handheld theme here. And um, uh, a video was released by the Forks this week uh, entitled Megaton, Steam Deck Megaton, Megaton in uh, block capitals, as is the tradition. And uh, the Megaton in question, uh, I'd say, is, um, I don't know, appropriate wording, Megaton. Um, essentially that um, Steam Deck has uh, had a hack of sorts within Windows to enable 40 hertz support. And um, yeah, we should talk about what that actually means. But I guess the big news here is that Valve has actually piped up to say, hey, yes, we're actually looking at um, arbitrary uh, refresh rates for the LCD. And actually, when I was um, uh, it, during the, when I was talking to them during the review period, I said, "Have you considered a 50 hertz uh, mode? Because a lot of games seem to lurk around 50 hertz, and it would be great to actually have VSync cap at 50, and uh, you get an experience that isn't far off 60, but um, obviously it would would be a lot smoother than you know dropped frames here and there. 40 also very good." So, Alex, why don't you talk us through why 40 hertz on a handheld is so interesting and desirable, uh, kind of colored by your experiences right now uh, with uh, Crisis Remastered running on the on the handheld. For me, um, the, the reason why, especially 40 hertz, 50 hertz, as Rich is saying, is also really nice. Um, but 40 hertz is also kind of specifically really great because as I'm finding out on the Steam Deck, and I think a lot of people will find this out as well. If you actually do want to play it on the move um, and the game is semi-modern, that uh, 60 hertz may be hard to do in general for the reason of you're dropping frames here or there. And maybe not every section of the game runs uh, as well as other sections. But also by the fact that uh, you're hitting battery life and thermal limits really quickly on the Steam Deck. 30 hertz uh, solves that issue. You know, you have all this headroom there. You can get a nice steady 30 hertz cap, usually with the uh, SteamOS capping option there. Uh, but then you're stuck at 30 hertz. And let's be completely honest. 30 hertz, 30 FPS gameplay. I don't like the way it looks usually. It looks better on a smaller screen due to the pixels, uh, like the, act, you know, 
higher, you need less higher frame rates the smaller, the higher the pixel density is from your uh, viewing perspective because you don't actually see the differences, um, the parallax so easily. But it still doesn't feel too great. And I'm playing a first person shooter like that, Christ, Christ Remastered there. You can definitely feel that 30 FPS update when you're doing turns, when you're rapidly trying to swing the camera around and all these things like you do in a first person You don't get shooter. nostalgia from uh, the old 8800 GT days? Uh, I, uh, that was on a mouse, usually. I don't feel as nostalgic. I, I, you'd be surprised. I don't like the way it feels so much. But the halfway point there, literally in terms of uh, milliseconds of frame latency there is 40 hertz. Rich has talked about this before in his Ratchet and Clank uh, 40 hertz megaton video with a lot of exclamation points, megaton. Um, gigaton. Mega gigaton. Gigaton, that's what it was. Gigaton. You've moved on. Yeah. Um, where, you know, there, you know, when you just look at the difference between 30 and 60 FPS, you think about it in terms of frames per second, but if you actually look at it in terms of milliseconds, you actually see that one is double the amount of milliseconds. It's 33.333 repeating versus 16.6666 repeating. Um, with uh, 40 hertz, you're getting that right in that halfway point there in terms of milliseconds uh, per frame. And that feels a lot better. And interestingly, I think you start crossing the threshold as well of looking a lot smoother. Um, that uh, So it looks a lot better. But, you know, I want to say this 40 hertz uh, megaton is a really great thing, but it's not a megaton, gigaton uh, in terms of <laughs> in terms of always ensuring a level of smoothness that you want, because when you're going to be trading battery life to be doing this as soon as you uh, start going for higher requirements. Uh, but also, since we're not talking about a 120 hertz screen being driven at 40 FPS with perfect, you know, uh, three frame delivery there. Uh, we're actually talking about a real 40 hertz. Um, I don't know what necessarily that's going to look like. I cannot say what that's going to look like. I have not looked at a 40 hertz screen in a while. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like. But also, when you miss a beat and a 40 hertz screen, you're going to be dropping down to the millisecond per frame of 20 FPS. And that can make frame drops look more egregious, actually, in the 40 hertz mode. Uh, so these are things I would love to see in person. For obvious reasons, I have not tested a 40 hertz screen because there hasn't really been a need to. Um, but I'm really liking the idea of this because trying out Crisis Remastered here, I'm seeing, you'll see my video, but 60 is a hard bargain and I don't like it so much. Uh, but 30 is quite a steep compromise at times, just visually. Uh, so I like this middle ground and I like I want to see what Valve does with it uh, when the time comes because Windows Windows on Steam Deck Rich covered that before but I want to see it native in Steam OS. Yeah, it looks like they're going to be doing it. That's the, the cool thing and that's actually a thing that I really love about Steam Deck is that um, they are responding to these features and these requests and they're looking at it and I think the other thing is that it's not news to them. They you know when I was speaking to them about 50 hertz it was like yeah we you know this has been in our minds for a while now. It's not as if these are new ideas that they haven't been considering. You know, they, they're fully aware of all of this stuff. And, you know, the fact that they actually delivered a really good 30 FPS cap uh, uh, within the OS sort of says to me that they, you know, they really know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, they, they get it. They get what this has to do to be a hybrid between a PC and a console, which I think is probably Steam Deck's biggest triumph. 
a lot of lessons here that could actually be rolled back into an actual console if they were actually wanted to go down. They really could group all these things. Yeah, and um, you know, it's 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 just really positive. The other thing which I think is really interesting about uh, having this sort of arbitrary um, uh, refresh rate limit, whether it's fifty, whether it's forty, is that the APU has power limits, right? It you know has performance limits, and you hit those limits a lot whether it's CPU, whether it's GPU, whether it's the power limit, these are fundamental things that stop you being able to run even, you know, I couldn't run Enslaved, that really old Ninja Theory game at a lot 60 FPS on Steam Deck. Should be able to do that for some reason, whether it's the original game code, whether it's Steam OS, whether it's all of these constraints that the processor has, it can't do that. So the more- Have you ever run that on a, a PS3, by the way? <laughs> Isn't it Terra City? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you seen it? I, of course, I looked at it oh, back that's in right. the day it's, when it first it's came out. The second half of that game on a PS3 is one of the choppiest, worst things you'll ever see. <laughs> it's so bad. I just had to mention that. Oh, it's dear. it's eye searing. <laughs> eye searing. <laughs> I think yeah, but I think the bottom line is that the ability to. Uh, get consistent performance. I mean, it won't be as smooth as 60 uh, when it is running at 60, but consistency is so important. And this is actually a really cool feature that I, I think we'll look at it when it's actually integrated into SteamOS rather than doing these uh, these window hacks, because I really don't like Windows on the Steam Deck. Um, it kind of just robs the machine of what makes it a good handheld. Man, I can just see and, Gabe sitting back in his chair and going, mission accomplished. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is all just, I, I just love the way that um, it's almost like a new frontier, this this console uh, slash PC hybrid and um, Valve are receptive to all of these ideas. And it's also great that the community is actually trying all of this stuff out and delivering these megatons. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it's really great. We've got a couple of uh, Sega news stories to round off the news this week. Uh, we're going to start with Sonic Origins, which seems to be a new compilation of uh, the, the classic OG games. I did sort of uh, look over the announcement. I'm not quite sure what's special about it, but John, you can fill me and us in on this, right? Yeah, so this is a really great looking collection for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, head cannons involved, and who they have a long history working in Sonic games and the fan community worked on Sonic Mania as well, along with Christian Whitehead and crew and the whole, all of them. Uh, the idea here is this is essentially the, the reworking of Sonic one, two, three and knuckles and CD <laughs> into a single collection rebuilt in the retro engine, which is, you know, what we had seen before in those phone versions, but not fully on home consoles. So that means you get lots of niceties, including full widescreen support, which is really, really awesome for these games. Uh, lots of different bonus features and character switching in and out. They bring back like uh, levels that were missing, like um, that, you know, I'm forgetting the name, but from Sonic 2, there was the one level that was cut that was shown in preview builds. That's now in. They remade that on the phone version of Sonic 2. Stuff like that is in there. So they're more complete, fully widescreen, and also that means things like slowdown are removed, uh, which they were mostly fine on Mega Drive originally, except Sonic CD, which has a ton of slowdown. And the old PS3, 360, PC port did actually fix that before, but it's nice to have a new higher res 
in terms of scaling, I mean, a version of that available in this collection. They're also doing this crazy thing that I really like where it sounds like there's going to be a mode where all games are combined into a single game and they've done new animated cutscenes between them to link them together to create this whole like story. Uh, and I'm curious to see how that goes. I like the idea of basically doing like a gigantic, it's like Sonic three and knuckles. When you would combine Sonic three with the Sonic and knuckles cart, you basically get that full larger game. Uh, it sounds like they're basically doing that, but for all of the games, <laughs> which is uh, really interesting. So, you know, I know that the port quality is going to, yeah, the port, I guess you could say. It's not emulation. Uh, it's going to be very, very good. I expect that completely. The only caveat right now, and this is not going to, it won't hurt the game necessarily, but they're, they have this awful release thing. It's like a spreadsheet of oh, all these yes, I've seen it. Sp- I, I don't, pages. and like the price difference is like five bucks between them. And I'm just like, you're doing, you're going to, make people annoyed and upset over five bucks say really like it's something like that it's 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 so weird and it's just strange stuff like the digital deluxe has character animation in the main menu and camera controls over the menu the main menu islands and i'm like what why why is that if i don't i don't understand well it's a, it's a megaton feature so <laughs> mega drive feature I hate that this has happened because it seems like they've done everything possible right in terms of actually developing this project. And then they're tacking on these weird pre-order DLC bonus things that's just going to turn people off. And I really hope that doesn't actually impact the success of it. I mean, it is Sonic. I'm sure it'll do well, but it's just that weird thing of like getting like 95% of the way there and then tripping and falling right at the end. You mm-hmm. know? It seems like a remarkable state of affairs for the sake of $5. I I agree. I I'm baffled by it. What I really don't get though is how like there's stuff like there's stuff you get in the digital deluxe edition. You'd expect that they have the most, but some of that stuff you don't get like the start dash pack as they call it apparently gives you mirror mode and a hundred bonus coins but wait it's included with the pre-order of standard or digital okay so that's a pre-order so there's two things you get that is only available if you pre-order right so if you don't pre-order it you don't get it ever um right oh my god that's the same but there's also the premium there's a premium fun pack but I can't tell what that is. <laughs> and then there's the classic music pack that says additional tracks from Mega Drive Genesis titles. That just has its own ring there. Like, where is is that a DLC thing? It, it, is this the I one guess, that comes no, that with does the come toy? with it? It comes with the digital <laughs> deluxe. I'm going in circles here. I don't understand this. Like, why did they make this stupid spreadsheet of nonsense? Like, Dan, they, don't. What are, what are the coins about? What, what, what Sonic does rings. Sonic does Mario rings. So my guess, well. Like in Sonic Mania, you could like earn from doing the special stages. You get like these medals that are like coins, I guess, uh, that like to check off in like a list. You don't actually use them in game. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe there's some mode where I don't know, man. It's it's stupid. Like Sega, if you're watching, don't do this, please. Just walk this stuff back. Just just release it proper. Also put out a physical version, please. Like come on. Because you're almost there. This this could be the definitive collection of these games. Another thing that they're doing on PC that I'm looking at the Steam page right now and sighing at is that it... Uh, so Steam is a form of DRM, everyone. 
Shocking, I know. <laughs> um, but if you, you look at the right-hand side of the page here, shows all the stuff about the game, it says, one or more products in this package may use, may, as if they don't know, use the third-party DRM de novo anti-tamper. What is the purpose of Sonic having de novo De, de Wait, I'm not seeing that on here. the spreadsheet. Here. Wait, oh, oh yeah, here, here it is tucked, tucked at the bottom. If you get the... St <laughs> uh, that's what, a pre-order bonus. Like, I, I'm, I'm like DRM. serious, people. Like, I don't think the thing that's stopping Sonic from being uh, popular on PC is the fact that pirates are pirating it. I really don't think that it is. And this is just punishing to people who buy the game. Plus, like John is saying, you know what? I would love a GOG version of this. But uh, that obviously will never happen now. Uh, so... What are they doing? What are they doing? Here? The elephant in the room is uh, where's Sonic Mania 2, right? Right. I mean, it's pretty clear that Evening Star uh, is probably doing something else. We don't know what they're doing, but I suspect they wanted to make their own thing, and I can respect that. Uh, I'll be curious to see what it is, but yeah. Um, there's, there's more Sega news. Um, report from Bloomberg saying that Sega's uh, often discussed super games that have been in development. I don't, know, I don't know where all of this has come from. There's uh, essentially been um, the reboots for Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio. And apparently uh, the conceit is to chase Fortnite riches. Uh, this seems to me to be an incredibly bad idea. Uh, obviously, we don't really know anything about it. Maybe it'll all click into place once we've got the, uh, the information at hand. But... Um, Wan, uh, it doesn't sound good, does it, John? No, th this man, this Big is like budgets. Crazy Taxi it just would be released in two to three years. It just ri <laughs> rips me apart when I think because I love Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio, but then Absolutely. when you mention something like Fortnite, which I don't like, uh, <laughs> and you mention like big budget and super game has NFTs and stuff in the past, and you put all this stuff in together, I'm like, again, like, do you guys even know your audience at that point? Like, why would you bring back these specific titles and then do that to it? I don't know. Uh, maybe they don't care about uh, those of us that like those titles in the first place and they just want to go after Fortnite kids. And I don't know if they'll necessarily get it, but, uh, you know, I, I just I don't see what you can do with those games to go to make them like that. I mean, Crazy Taxi was very popular for a while. I think they can bring that back, but why does it have to be some high-budget thing? I mean, are they going to... Unless they're like, you know that Microsoft Flight Simulator? It's pretty good, right? What if we did that? <laughs> Great crazy stuff. Taxi, you know. <laughs> well, why don't we take the uh, eponymous uh, Crazy Taxi, put it in the Unreal Engine 5 city sample, build up a game around it? I wonder if I, I can... That's a 60 FPS game, Rich. I don't know if it will really roll. Extract those models. That would be very funny to drop that in there. So I think what John's getting at is uh, they have Sonic Mania as an example of how to do taking a legacy IP, uh, updating it with the respect uh, and uh, modern design constraints, you know, widescreen support, uh, accessibility options, and things like that, uh, and giving it to someone who knows and loves it and has an appropriate budget. Which feels like these kind of more arcadey style games, like Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio. They're not super complex games. Um, they're just visually, they have a lot of visual flair. They're fast, uh, have interesting music. Both of them are licensed music games, right? Um, well, the, the depth comes in their core mechanics. Yeah, right. Not... So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's all about like this core mechanics and sim simple, interesting little visuals. But uh, 
if you're going to build them out into large budget franchises with multiple installments or something like that, uh, it seems like you're just missing with the whole point of what these games are. And you're setting yourself up from Sega's perspective uh, for disappointment because I cannot imagine that the kids, the Fortnite kids, are going to want to play Crazy Taxi. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. You mentioned Sonic Mania, but actually what was more impressive about that year is that they did Sonic Mania and Sonic Forces, right? I didn't, I didn't love Sonic Forces, but that specifically appealed to a younger demographic. They loved that game. They latched onto it. Sonic Mania appealed to us old guys, right? So they basically sold... They were able to make two games... And they sold them to two different audiences, as well as some cross-pollination, of course. And they get excellent sales and, and pretty solid critical response all around. They basically nailed it that time. Um, so I feel like that is that that is the model that could work so well for Sega, right? If they if they want to try to do this, like that two-pronged approach, because I feel like you could do a smaller smaller development title that channels what made those games great and do really well but also maybe if you want to build up the franchise do something bigger with it at the same time and you have this two-pronged approach and bam success maybe hopefully so i i don't know i i'm i mean i'm curious I, we can't say anything about it yet it's just it's so strange <laughs> it's it's strange to resurrect um franchises from a turn of the century or, be, or, or before and uh, and basically expects to uh, chase Fortnite riches, assuming that is actually their intent and not the Bloomberg article's interpretation. They mean multimedia? Yeah. Like, you know, like Sonic Boom had a television show, right? Uh, maybe that's what they mean by chasing Fortnite? I don't, I don't know. Uh, but let's close off the news discussion now and go straight on to supporter Q&A. Already done a few questions, obviously, tied into uh, specific um, uh, news stories. And actually, there's one here which uh, is tied into Sonic, John. And uh, it's from 1040STF. I just learned, like a few, that the Sonic Jam compilation on Saturn had what we would call director's cuts of each game, bizarrely entitled <laughs> Normal Mode in the difficulty settings which would explain why almost no one ever paid attention to it, especially as they have never been available anywhere else. Do you have an opinion on them? Uh, Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I think there's actually, might be a hard mode as well. I have to double check, but it's been a little while. But Sonic Jam is really interesting because the Saturn was not powerful enough to emulate the Mega Drive. So they actually, they're reprogrammed versions of those games rather than emulated, right? And Sonic Jam is very cool in that regard because it has that whole 3D world to explore with lots of bonus features. They cataloged all like their commercials in there and tons of music and images and just so much stuff, a big 3D world to explore. Plus it has all those games with sort of the director's cut modes, if you will, in there as, on top of it. Uh, it's a very impressive package. My only complaint is that the sound effects and music aren't quite right. And I think that's just because trying to replicate the sound of the mega drive on the saturn was not so easy uh right. which, but, but what was actually director's cut i think it, I, about about them I, I think it's just different placements on enemies and stuff and things right, like that okay. i i actually need to i i forget what all the differences might be i'm sure someone in the sonic community has dissected them uh, because they're very good about doing that so i'll have to look into that to to remember 
because I have played through it on that, but it has been a while because it's not my preferred way to play those games. Good stuff. Uh, next question. I'm going to go to this one from Trans Tech Girl. Maybe less a question, more a suggestion. I'd love to see a DFRETFO on RTSs or a tech deep dive into them or something. I just didn't feel they get enough love. What Also, what is your favorite RTS? Now, this is a question for you, Alex, surely. I mean, like most things, um, what is my favorite is pretty mood dependent. Like, it's hard to say, uh, like, what is my absolute favorite? But the one I've played the most, for good reason, is Dawn of War 2. Um, because for me, Relic have always been really good at avoiding uh, RTS tropes. Uh, because, you know, you had your Warcraft, you had your Command and Conquer, uh, and then a lot of games took those kind of styles and built upon them uh, in terms of how like micromanagement of units were, the entire macro economy of these games, how clicks per minute became like the most important thing in a StarCraft match and build orders. Uh, there are still those things in a lot of Relic games in terms of build orders, but the actual uh, in-the-moment gameplay is actually the most important thing. It's your tactical decisions, because uh, your units are much more, they have a lot more worth in them, usually. Whether this applies to Homeworld, Impossible Creatures, Impossible Creatures is a really cool game. Would love to talk about it. Um, and this carried all the way across Company of Heroes and things like that uh, into their uh, Dawn of War franchise, and then Dawn of War 2 specifically, which is kind of like an off-brand version of Company of Heroes. And I love that game so much because if you've ever played it, one, the multiplayer is very interesting uh, because you have such different units and uh, races, as they're called in it. But also the single-player campaign is a co-op campaign where you each take a number of squads per person, and it's kind of like playing a weird RPG. Uh, it's very cool, really well done. No games exist like it anymore other than that... Um, uh, gosh, I forget the name of the game. Um, Iron Harvest that I covered as part of my Game of the Year 2020 video. Uh, so I love that game. I love Relic. Uh, I would love to cover them on the channel. They're also working on Company of Heroes 3 now, which is probably good time to talk about Company of Heroes because Company of Heroes 1, it's like one of the first DirectX 10 games. It looks like it has the graphics of like Call of Duty, but you're like zoomed out. It's pretty awesome. Uh, so yeah, that is probably my favorite RTS game right now. And do you think we should do some sort of DF Retro on RTSs? It's difficult, right? Because it's, you know, it's like, let's do a DF Retro on FPS. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it wouldn't have to be RTS. It'd be like a specific series of games, but not all of them. Because it's like, imagine looking at Command & Conquer. There's like 12 games. Like, you can't do them all. Um, not reasonably, you know. Uh, so, like, it would have to be like a specific. That wouldn't series. stop John. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah about that. <laughs> I love, I loved like, F uh, RTSs back in the '90s. I played a ton of them. It was, it was a, one of my favorite genres on the PC. I mean, of course, I loved the Blizzard stuff. I played a lot of Myth: The Fallen Lords. I loved Total Annihilation, uh, games like that. But one, not, not literally, well, <laughs> not literally. <laughs> one genre I want to see make a return someday is. And stop me if you've heard this, the Straction genre. Do you remember that one? <laughs> what? The, the strategy action genre. It started up with 3DO's Uprising, which is great. But the one I really loved was Activision's reboot of Battlezone from oh, 1998. You're oh, are you talking about like the mixing of... Yeah, so it's an RTS RT. game at yes. heart. Yes. But you control a first-person character. You can get in and out of units. And you're essentially commanding the battlefield while also playing a shooter. 
Uh, it feels like this weird mix of like concepts they had from like Mech Warrior games at that time, combined with an RTS, and it's just it's an awesome hybrid. It actually got a sequel, so did Uprising, and then those kind. I guess it could be argued that uh, Herzog 2 on Mega Drive is actually kind of this type of game as well. But then they just kind of disappeared, and it's not something we see that often. The closest thing I can think of to it was a Brutal Legend, weirdly enough, from Double Fine, which is one of those games. But I, I didn't like the mission structure as much. It was a little too open-worldy. But still, I would like to see a return to that. Battlezone 3, come on. Battlezone 3 win. So like, the, yeah, like that style of game is very interesting. Some of my favorite games are also mixes. Uh, like, you, like I actually do kind of like Command Conquer Renegade, but one of my favorite games is Natural Selection, but it's a multiplayer version of the Battlezone concept. Um, and one of the things I would argue that that kind of game, uh, like the RTS genre itself, got eaten up by games that were just doing it in a more cookie cutter, clicky kind of manner. Like, I almost want to say Tower Defense is the equivalent of what happened to that, John, in a weird way. I know I don't like those games at all, but like, it's the equivalent of like you're managing in a real time strategy kind of zone, but you're playing it as an individual character doing these things. I don't know. Uh, I agree with you, though. Next question. This one should be fairly straightforward. Uh, Takashino asks, in the light of the Doom RT and Chronicross video and having watched the Power Slave remaster video recently, I was reminded of CRT features in Reshade and Retro Arc, for example. Retro Arch? Retro Arc. Um, personally, I've been fascinated with CRT Royale. I would love to hear John's views on these filters, especially CRT Royale. Exclamation point. Wow, I, I love it almost as like a Kingdom Royale. No, I, I love CRT shaders like that. I think they look great. It helps make art work well on a flat panel rather than just having those like big chunky pixels. But of course, the thing that I don't see discussed often that still gets to it is it only solves half the problem, right? You're, you're solving the way things might look on a CRT, but you're not solving the motion resolution issues with it, right? You're still inherently limited by the fact that you're using a flat panel for it most of the time. Uh, so, you know, scrolling is blurry and you get persistence blur. And if you couple this with black frame insertion, it looks fantastic, but all those CRT shaders end up dimming the picture somewhat because you're filling it with black space, essentially. Uh, and then when you add BFI on top of that, it's extra dark. So... It's not quite a CRT. The closest I've found is if you take like a PC monitor, like an old PC CRT, like Alex and I have on our desks here, and you run a CRT shader on that, then that's good. That looks real good. And PC monitors of the CRT variety are cheap and plentiful. If you want to see it at its best, go get one. It's awesome. Are you, are you suggesting running a CRT shader for, on a CRT? Yeah. Correct. Well, because okay. PC CRTs are very high resolution, right? It's like 31 kilohertz, uh, you know, they don't look like those old consumer sets, like for TV, right? So the, these shaders are designed to simulate the way like an old 240p, 15 kilohertz tube looks uh, on a much higher resolution screen. But you get all the benefits of CRT as well, like motion clarity. A question here, which is uh, likely to uh, strike fear into the heart of Alex Battaglia, but I'm going to pose the question nonetheless. It's from Nostra. Any chance we might get a video on Cyberpunk 2077 next-gen release comparison to PC? Like what settings the PS5 or Series X uses compared to PCs Max? Also a brief discussion on how DLSS affects SSAO or Shadows compared to native rendering. As we know, it affects volumetric fog and reflections and GI based on the internal resolutions. And I just want to know if it's the same with Shadows and AO or not. Alex. 
All right, so I kind of don't want to do this video. <laughs> so that's an answer to that question. I mean, but, but a lot of people want to see it. Apparently. I, I'm kind of curious. Okay, so maybe it becomes a thing when there's, you know, there's also less stuff happening in the next months. Yeah, probably. Alex, let's get that video. Let's get that video. It just takes a day. <laughs> um, but uh, so, you know, I think we're going to see very quickly there that's like the, the high medium settings and then we know what uh, ray tracing setting it's using. Um, so I think that's not going to be the hard part. Uh, in, in regards to your second question there, um, for SSAO, it should also affect the internal resolution of SSAO as well, too. Uh, but you have to take into consideration that a lot of, especially in that game, SSAO uh, is re uh, reprojected over time. So it's pretty hard to see the differences in resolution. Uh, internal resolution for something like AO. One, it's a very diffuse effect, so seeing differences in it is pretty hard anyway. And then the fact that DLSS is going to be upscaling and reconstructing, it's not going to be easy, but yes, it will have an effect on that. Uh, shadows, uh, for shadow maps, not really. Shouldn't really have an effect on shadow maps unless there's some sort of screen space dithering going on to blend the shadow really well. Uh, but for RT shadows, it would have an effect on them because they're based on the, the how many pixel rate pixel. So if your internal resolution is lower, you're technically going to get a slightly different resolve uh, versus native resolution. It may not look that much different though, because you know shadows. You know, it's it's not like the same as like reflections. You don't need all that like clarity always. So that's my answer. And uh, final question here from uh, QUK. Am I the only one looking at the gameplay of Ghostwire Tokyo and can't stop thinking? Isn't this just Lich Dog Battle Mage? Yeah. Oh man. Right. Lich Dog <laughs> Battle Mage. Yes, it's been a long time since that. Uh I hadn't actually thought about that, but now that you say <laughs> it, it does it does kind of remind me of it. Yeah. I would say Lich Dog Battle Mage has quite a more complex uh shooting and magical system, you know. It's more it's more like a kind of traditional RPG in that aspect. You think it's superior to Ghostwire Tokyo? I honestly didn't like Ghostwire Tokyo at all's gameplay. Uh, so yes, I would probably say Lich the Battle Mage. The PC version was always fine. That's that's what we've got to focus on, right? Because uh, it's it's actually a really good game from what I can it's see. Very, very, it's very decent. <laughs> it's pretty decent. The thing decent is, game. if you play the, like, the console, at least on, play the PS4 version with the patch on a PS5, I think you pretty much just get a lock 60 now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> How did uh, this is the question, John? How did you discover the initial state of Lich Dog Battle Mage? Was it like community feedback or something? You've got to see this. Uh, tons of people sending me messages, dude. You got to look at this game. Look how bad this is. <laughs> and then I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, that's that's real bad. <laughs> it, <laughs> I got to cover that. I really do wonder what happened. Like, what is? Because it didn't even look that different, right? Like after the update, it didn't look visually that no, different, right? I don't, so I, no. I don't know. It, it, it was actually optimized. Mm -hmm. That's the crazy thing, right? Cry it engine, baby. The response. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Amazing. Okay, look, that's it. That's the end of DF Direct Weekly number 58. Please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the content. Ring the bell for those notionally instant uh, notifications. Again, no guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week for more nonsense. And um, in the meantime, uh, thanks for watching.